This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah's Essentials program. Here we are once again, uh, growing together. Uh, you know what I realized? If I were born a Gentile, I would have millions of followers. <laughs> There's something about being Jewish that that it takes me like you'd have to be my devout student for like three months to get your skepticism off because Jews are the ultimate skeptics like we take everything with a sandbox of sand and it's just the way we are even when we think we're open I'm the same way I'm Jewish too <laughs> when I hear someone speak I'm just like okay you know that's your opinion. <laughs> Thanks for your opinion. You know, that's just the way we hear things. And that's the beauty of Jews. Is we're just, we distinguish deeply. The one thing that we do have, though, is the one thing we have is the attribute of gratitude because the word Jew is the word Yehudi. And the word Yehudi is from the word Hoda'ah. And the word Hoda'ah is from the word Toda'ah. Give thanks. Our essence is thanksgiving. So when we do hear something that touches us, we have gratitude. Meaning we often will recognize, you'll, you'll notice that you would often think about people who've touched you deeply. People who have made a difference for you in your worldview, in your, in your heart, in your life. That, that we do have gratitude. Gratitude we have. Followership, we're lousy at that. We're not good at being followers. In fact, um, uh, Golda Meir said to the President of the United States, when he said, you know what it's like to be the President of 300 million people? She said, do you know what it's like to be the Prime Minister of 5 million Prime Ministers? <laughs> and, and, the, and the amazing thing about everything I'm sharing with you is, the, is that it actually goes to the core of our people. And that is, and the core of our people is the word, is, oh, sorry, is Hebrew. And Hebrew if it doesn't have a word for it, it doesn't exist. It's a human fabrication. And interestingly, in the whole Hebrew language, and this is crazy, because there's a couple words that don't exist in the Hebrew language. Like, for example, vacation. <laughs> there's no word vacation in Hebrew. And that's why I notice over and over again that sometimes someone will say to me, listen, I got either money to go fly to Greece for the week, or I have the money to stay in Jerusalem and do your seminar. And I say, for sure, do my seminar. And he says, but I could just be laying on a beach in Greece rather than having you push me to like the end of the earth on, you know, personal growth work. And, and I said, yeah, and you'll get much more pleasure where? Where are you going to get the pleasure? In the seminary. You'll get much more pleasure for that whatever 650 bucks is going to be worth a lot more in the seminar than it will be on Greece, in Greece. And so, and, these, and people spend a lot more on vacation. But in Hebrew, there's no word for vacation because you all know that your greatest pleasure is not when you're on vacation. Your greatest pleasure is when something deep and meaningful takes place. That's your greatest pleasure. And usually something deep and meaningful takes place when you get all invested and committed into something. The opposite of vacation. Vacation is when you exit whatever you're committed to. Vacation is when you leave what it is you've kind of made your life about. Then you take a vacation from that. And that's not where the pleasure is. The pleasure is when you put your whole thing, you put all of yourself, both feet in, and you get totally committed to something that is a growth kind of situation. That's always going to be your greatest pleasure. So one of those words in Hebrew that doesn't exist, or so one of the words that's not in Hebrew that 
is not, it's a fabrication of humanity, is the word follower. Doesn't exist in Hebrew. We don't have a word for follower. Which is crazy because we have about, I don't even know how many words, I've never really counted them, but, and I wish you were all a bunch of Hebrew scholars because we could count them now. But we have lots of words for leader. Leadership, we got tons of words. All the way from like despots, all the way to great leaders who are benevolent leaders. We have lots of words in Hebrew for different types of leaders. But when it comes to follower, no word there. So what's that supposed to mean? How can I have leaders without followers? <laughs> Which is how I started this whole talk. That if I were a Gentile, I'd have probably millions of followers. But because my students are Jewish, I have none. Which is pretty amazing, actually. Because that means I get to raise my wife. Raise my wife. I get to be married to my wife and raise my children. <laughs> Believe it, my, my wife's raising me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just take a moment of reflection of today's conversation before I left the house. Isn't it amazing how women, like when you got five minutes before you leave, they can open up an hour long discussion? I mean, you might as well just shoot yourself in the foot. You know, he's got to go. And now you opened up an important discussion that's going to take an hour to finish, but he literally has to leave. So, like, create your own frustrations. Now, anyway, so there's no word for follower, which tells you that a leader in Judaism is to create what? Leaders. Leaders, good. Leader in Judaism is to create leaders. Leadership means that you're spawning leadership into the world. You're creating everyone as a leader. There's no such thing as a follower. Now, there are two types of personalities. There are dynamics, and there are, are supportives. Everyone in this room is either a dynamic or a supportive. And you know who you are, by the way. There's dynamic personalities and supportives. There's nothing wrong with being supportive, and there's nothing wrong with being dynamic. Dynamics, uh, dynamic, of course, are more popular because everyone's, you know, they're, they've got a certain magnanimism. They have a, 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 a charisma more than a supportive but let's see, a, let's see a dynamic get anywhere without supportives in his life. He'll get nowhere. He will be the guy painting the inside of underpasses, of highways. <laughs> that will be the dynamic without supportives behind him. That would be it. And that was only when he got someone to lend him money for paint. So dynamics without supportives are nowhere. And you'll notice that half our room is going to be dynamics and half the room is going to be supportives. And that is, but that's only because we're Jewish. In the Gentile world, you have many, 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 many more supporters than dynamics. Dynamics are one in 50, I think, that science, you know, sociologists say. One in 50 in the Jewish world, the dynamics are like, it's like 60-40 or 70-30 dynamics to supporters. I don't know what this means. So, so who's a dynamic? you got to vote. You're either a dynamic or a supportive. Who's a dynamic? Raise your hands. And the supportives, raise your hands. Okay, pride came out somewhere around there. Maybe maybe a little less. Maybe some of the supporters don't want to admit they're supporters. Which is fine. That's fine. But if you want to know what you really are, just all you have to do is break down your time. Like, look at your time. Are you are you supporting something? Or are you, or are you leading something? But a supportive is not a follower at all. A supportive is the is the structure and the the skeleton, the the spine of of all the great movements in the world. 
But supportives have a terrible issue on their hands, and that is that if the dynamic dies or moves on or, or some other, what they often get is, is a, a character assassination, like everyone likes to take down a dynamic. And, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but if that dynamic disappears, who's left at that particular, who's left in that industry? Who's left? If the dynamic's gone, who's left? Supportives who think now they should run. Now, how well is something going to be run by a bunch of supportives without the dynamic at the, at the you know, with the, without that visionary there? Not going to be good. Not going to be good. And, uh, and I hate to say it, but uh, I'm sure everyone would admit it, and I at least have one Jew from uh, the uh, very observant community of New York back there. Are you from New York, right? <laughs> Where are you from? Brooklyn. Oh, I've heard Is that the observant community today, the, like the black attitude community today, is run probably 90% by, by supporters today. They're called Askani. And they're probably run like 90% by supportives because most of the visionaries that started the movements that have become these like mushroom communities, like mushroom communities, that the, the visionaries have long passed away. Long passed away. And then they could go off their, they went off their steam for a little while longer. But then it eventually just became a, a, a leadership by structure thinking people rather than visionaries. Because dynamics are visionaries and Supportives are structure thinkers. Who had, who who had who founded and led Apple computers? A visionary or a structure? Microsoft visionary or structure? Every every company starts with visionaries, but when they leave, you wind up with the structures, and then that's when you sell your stock. But how do we sell our stock in Judaism? We can't sell our stock as Jews. So our only last chance as Jews is to create grassroots, which is what I do, is create grassroots spirituality, which is what this class is all about. We're here to, to kind of revive ourselves. We're here to do the resuscitation of the dead and bring back the vision of our people. And, but we'll do it. There's, a, there's visionaries around. They're young and, and uh, you know, unfortunately half the visionaries are absolute wimps. You mind sliding over one and giving a seat to this nice lady? Um, most of the visionaries are big wimps. What do I mean by wimps? First of all, they're usually not raised observant, the visionaries. So they're raised by parents who created the visionary out of the kid. And uh, you mind sliding over a seat and giving her a chair? There, let's see. So, most of the visionaries are um, raised non-observant and then become observant after a couple years of study. They become that kind of visionary. But sadly, a lot of those people are involved in a game that you might have seen in front of a shopping mall called Whack-a-Mole. Heard about Whack-a-Mole? Whack-a-Mole is a... You know the game Whack-a-Mole? They have that in England? It has a bunch of holes. You have this big hammer and you it puts its head up and you whack it. <laughs> whack-a-mole. So, you know what whack-a-mole is? Whack-a-mole is where, where you try your best not to be noticed <coughs> so that you don't ever have to suffer any kind of humiliation or, or uh, you know, any derailment 
in your sense of self by others. So if you're a visionary playing whack-a-mole, do you ever make a difference? No, you never make a difference. And so many of our visionaries are, are sadly underground. And, but, but we are creating a, a community of visionaries that, that support one another to get our word out. And in fact, this guy who I was just WhatsApping with is uh, how we got in this whole WhatsApp connection was that he's letting me know that he's on an eight-country tour, his biggest tour of his life. And the whole theme of the tour, he's also a musician, his whole theme of the tour is you don't have to agree to love. Eight countries where the message is you don't have to agree to love. That's Because he's one of the visionaries. And, uh, and we got to get behind him. Uh, we got to get behind all visionaries, especially in our generation. Back to our course. Now, we're looking at the word spiritual. Spiritual. And you'll notice two words there. What are the two words you see in the word spiritual? Spirit, good, and ritual. And, uh, and if you're from Texas, you got a third word, y'all. <laughs> I hate public speakers who tell jokes. I can't stand them. But once in a while, I cheat and tell a joke. I try my best never to. I mean, if it isn't spontaneously funny, leave it out. You know, but I just had to tell a joke. You notice I don't What? I don't tell jokes. They're one of the distinctions. Yes, no, no, it's funny things happen. You don't script the jokes. You don't script this time I, I fail. No, you do in the seminar. Jokes? Yeah. Maybe if people are falling asleep. So, show them, gentlemen. We have a table for two right over here. Your waiter will be right with you. Yeah, that's it. Ladies, can you pull your table back a little so they can see the board? Yeah, you can switch the screen for our question. You want to switch the screen for our question? Just press the... Yeah, it's right there. Yaron. Yes, so we were just talking about being dynamics versus supportives. And uh, I could be wrong, I just wanted to get your opinion. Don't you feel like there, there are uh, times where everybody is uh, dynamic in, in their lives in a certain area within their life, or supportive within a certain area of their life? And if so, how do we, like, how do we use that, um, that flexibility within uh, in the individual's ability uh, in classifying what they are primarily? Yeah, that was an excellent question. And the, the answer is we're putting on different hats all the time. Um, Supportives are generally always going to be supportive, but dynamics often have to play supportive roles. Yeah, so supportives generally are always playing supportive. Now, sometimes you're stuck. It's your kid's bar mitzvah. And you got to stand up there and, like, thank everybody and, you know, say something on the parsha. You're stuck being dynamic. You have no choice. You're going to have to create some kind of dynamism there. And uh, so there are times supportives put it on, but only when they're stuck. Uh, dynamics, on the other hand, like for example, 
I mean, I could give you a ton of examples, but just in the last... Every week, what I do is... I have a, I think got a lot of kids. So what I do is I go through all my kids and I see who needs my support. So even today, I, uh, I canceled a meeting and went and met one of my children in town, took them out to lunch, and just spent a solid hour. And it was a canceled meeting. Uh, it was a, I canceled a $150 meeting. Um, it's more important that I'm supporting my kid than, than uh, that meeting. And so I went and did it. You know. <laughs> by, by the way, I'm, I'm freaking out that I've said that live. My meetings are $200. <laughs> <laughs> I gave someone three meetings at 150 each. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. These meetings are 150 bucks. So I just had to put that on the record because we're live camera right now. <laughs> um, by the way, charging $200 an hour as a rabbi is a little much. You know, that's a lot of money. But the, the reason I do it is because I hate one-on-one -on -one meetings. And I noticed that $100 I was canceling them one after the other. And then I moved it to 150 and noticed I'm still canceling them, hence today. And, um, but today I had a son, you know, that needed me. And then, uh, <laughs> but I noticed at 200 bucks, I stopped canceling. So I'll let you know when I stop, start canceling at 200 bucks, because then it's going to 250. Anyway. But it's not about the money. Like, obviously, if I'm canceling $100 meetings, it's not about the money. It's just... That every hour, I like my life to be like wildly alive, and oftentimes when I'm meeting one-on-one -on -one with people, I fall asleep during the hour, and I've already slept the night before, and I don't want to sleep during a meeting. I'm totally messing with you guys. I fall asleep in my meetings. You're all like, great, Rabbi. I'm in a crazy mood right now, so... When I, once I say something like that, I officially am taking no responsibility for anything that comes out of my mouth for the rest of this hour. I'm serious. I, I always know there's a line where I say something really crazy, like that, and uh, and then I'm officially anything that comes out of my mouth is a garbage can by the door. Okay, Shalom We ran out of chairs. So, now, um, the, the word spiritual, okay, oh good, we got a chair, okay, the word spiritual is made up of the word spirit and ritual, can you guys see this, slide over a little more so your friend can see, there's spirit and ritual, see that, and the, the word ritual is something, tell me, can you video a ritual? Yeah. 100%, can you video a spirit? 100% not. So, ritual, 100% you can video. Spirit, you cannot video. So, rituals are done with the body, and spirit are done with the soul. can't see it. In fact, the word spirit's an amazing word. It comes from the word air in lungs, meaning there's no English word for spirit. It just means air in lungs. Like, if you jog, you will perspire. You'll, you get a lot of air in your lungs, you will perspire. If you pass out, so they will bring a what? What will they put on your mouth? A respirator. It respires your lungs. If they if they fail at reviving you, what do you do? Expire. You expire. <laughs> when you see the Swiss Alps, you rejoice. 
<laughs> inspire. You inspire. When you see the Swiss Alps, you're, wow. And so the word spire has to do with air in your lungs. And it's very interesting that Adam, from, you know, this Torah, that Adam in the Garden of Eden is the only creature that gets double creation. It gets created as a body. It's made, like, from the earth. And then later it says that God blew into his nostrils a nishmas chayim, a soul of life. And interesting that that air into the lungs via the nostrils, which is interesting, why the nostrils? But air into the nostrils via the nostrils. And nostrils come up later, too, in the Torah. Like, for example, when two of Aaron, the high priest, Aaron Hakoin, Moses' brother, got super inspired, and they got, like, totally ecstatic about God, and they went into the Holy of Holies with their own little incense offering that they concocted that they thought might be cool, but it wasn't cool because you've got to use the actual formula that the Torah gives. And they brought in a strange offering, meaning, when I say strange, meaning foreign to the, to the uh, ingredients that were supposed to be in the incense, but it was what they at the time thought would be perfect. So a fire came out of heaven, came shooting down, split into two, split into four, went into their nostrils and took them internally. Their skin and clothing were still intact. Meaning, the, the, according to some pretty holy Kabbalists, the offering was received. They were taken totally from within because this offering came from within their deepest heart, inside their souls. Now, what they did was forbidden. They made a mistake, okay? People blow it sometimes when they're feeling ecstatic, you know, emotion and stuff. Obviously, the Torah is letting us know they made a mistake, but the Kabbalists seem to be wanting to let us know that there was something very special going on there. And that the externals were intact, but the internals were taken. They were a burnt offering. And Moses lost two children that day. He only had four sons, and two were gone. And the other two became... Sorry, Aaron lost two, two sons, That two of his four sons. There's a spot right there for you. He <laughs> just gave her water. I'll see you at four. He just stole your water. Well, that wasn't the spiked one. Can you close the door? Okay. <laughs> Probably for Rabbi Nekamari is going to come in here all creative and stuff. Now, so the ritual is the what, and the spirit is the why. Ritual is the what, and the spirit is the why. In Hebrew, those are the same words, obviously. It's like Spanish. Any Spanish speakers here? One Spanish speaker. So, how do you say what in Hebrew? Ma, and how do you say why? Lema. It's like Spanish. Que and porque. What and for what. But they're all from the word ma. And this is the essence of humanity, is this question ma. People who stop asking what are, are they're, they're not, all, they're just existing, subsisting. People who stop asking what. And people stop asking why. And why, 
why, why go on? Why go on at that point? Just to work and put food on the table? Like what and why are that's what we are made for what and why. We're built for that. The word ma is our essence. And you want to know something beautiful about the word ma? Is it's also humility. Why? Because if you're asking what and why, what are you admitting? You don't know. Which is an ultimate state of humility. And the ultimate state of arrogance is I do know. And how many people are masters of some little part of reality? And we give them so much respect. Like, for example, let's say an, an eye surgeon. Somebody who's master of the eye. But not just any surgery. One particular surgery. That's his thing. And now he's, like, driving around in a nice, you know, Maserati. And he's, like, the eye surgeon <laughs> to the stars. And, and, you know, he is the guy when it comes to eye surgery. And, of course, just to know him is an honor. Now, let's just look at knowledge here. I mean, if this were a pie chart of knowledge, if this was all knowledge, so tell me, how big a slice would you put the stuff, like he knows eyes, how big a slice would you put of the things you know for sure? I mean, like, for example, you know most of English probably, and you probably know, you know, you know probably a sport maybe, or, or uh, maybe you know some music really well, like by heart every word, you know. So how big a slice in all of knowledge would you put the stuff you know? <laughs> well, I've got to give it some kind of <laughs> dimension here. I'll give it a little dimension. How's that? I mean, it's probably not true of all knowledge. Don't forget, you have, it's not just fit knowledge of this world, it's esoteric knowledge, you know. I mean, do you realize, how much do you think there's more knowledge of our physical world or the spiritual world that's causing it? The spiritual world. It's massive complexities. Massive complexities that are only known by the mystics of the planet whether they're the, our Kabbalists who have a prophetic tradition of the metaphysics, or if it's the shamans and the medicine chiefs of the Amazon or the African jungles or the Native American Indians or the Indians in India, this is a massive body of knowledge that very few people on earth know. And that's with, but if they were doing this, that would include there. Now, um, how much... Knowledge are things you know, meaning this is the stuff you know that you know. How much stuff do you know you don't know? Meaning you know it's not, you know there's China, but you don't know China. And you know there's, you know there's uh, classical music for centuries, but you don't know much about it. So how big a slice of all the stuff you know that you don't know? And this is going to be the stuff you know that you don't know. How big a slice should I make it from here? How far should I go from here? Tell me when to stop. Okay, but it works well with the don't know. You realize that all of us have just admitted that there's a large amount of stuff that we don't know that we what? You ever thought about stuff you don't know that you don't know? <laughs> But you can imagine there's tons of stuff we don't even know exists. And once in a while you get to hear something. You'll be at a Shabbos table and someone starts talking about something you never in your life ever thought about. And now you have something that you know that you don't know. But leaving obviously a gigantic realm of stuff you don't know that you don't know. And some guy knows something about 
eye surgery. And we're going to, that's where all the respect goes. The fact is, we don't respect him for his knowledge of one little aspect of eyes. What do we really respect? What do we respect? Yeah. <laughs> we respect the power. Now, I would respect the fact that he's helped people restore their vision or whatever. I think we'd all respect that. But, but, the, uh, but the fact that we respect the fact that he's driving around in a Maserati and he's a powerful guy. He's got his third trophy wife, and he trades in every 15 years. And uh, now he can be married to someone over 40. And he, and he, but he'll get a ton of respect. Everyone will bow down to him. Why am I talking about this? How do we get on this? Ah, because he knows what he knows. Does that sound like, my description of that dude, does that sound like a Ma personality? No. No. He's not a Ma. He doesn't sound like a Ma personality. We want to be Ma personalities. We want to be what, what, why, what, why, what, why, what, why, what, why, what, why, 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 why. You know, I want to ask you a question. What's more important? What or why? Why. Raise your hand if you're in a what's Raise your hand if you're in a why. Okay, all the what's. Everyone has to vote. It's the one you prefer to know about. What? Raise your hand. Why? Raise your hand. Uh, the majority are whys. Now, you ready for this? Ready for this? Both. Both? The truth is, I think we're, I think we're all both, and the ones who raise their hand for each one are, are, are not necessarily being 100% real with it. We're all both. Anyone who saw something is going to be curious. We're all going to be what's when we see that curious thing. Now, later we might say, well, why? Why does it work? So I really think we're both. But you ready for this? Which one gets canceled out? Which one gets sacrificed in times of tension, persecution, tribulation, scarcity, a persecution? Did I say persecution? Which one gets canceled out? Why or what? Why? Why is going to take the hit? when we're going through stuff. Now, what happens when you lose the why? What happens when you take spirit out of ritual? What are you left with? What do you left, If you take the spirit out of spiritual, what are you left with? You're left with ritual. Y'all. You're left with ritual. If you take the spirit out of ritual, all you got left is the ritual. Well, tell me. I mean, I hope you haven't had to see this, but I've several times seen uh, seen this. What do you call a body without a soul? Dead. Cadaver. Corpse. And haven't we all been in situations where we all we had left was the physical, but the spirit of it was gone? And tell me, how much longer did the what stay when the why disappeared? How much longer are you going to keep doing a what when you don't have the why anymore? Give you an example. Let's say this guy, like, he's just in love with this girl, but he noticed that every time she's ever considered anyone, meaning a mate for her life, she's only dated the strongest guys. Like, guys who, like, buff. You know, so this guy says, this my only chance. 
I got to get to the gym. So he had a picture of her, and he's, he really wants to marry this girl. And, and he's and you know she only considers really strong guys. So what does he do? He puts it up in front of him. He has a little stick it, you know, thing on the sticks it up. And there he's doing he's doing his pectoral muscles. Looking at her pectoral muscles. When he does the bench press, he somehow like gets it up to the ceiling. <laughs> now tell me, are the weights heavier or light? Totally light. Totally light. He pushes till it hurts, but it's light. Why? Well, I just gave it away. He's, he, the what is he's lifting weights. The why is get that girl. He wants to marry this girl. She only dates muscle guys. So they're light. Now imagine he's on his way to the gym. And he's gotten to his locker. And he's about to put away his stuff when his phone gets a little WhatsApp that says that his... And she's engaged. <laughs> his best friend who knows this whole plot says she's engaged. Send him the message. And he's like, so sorry. A couple, you know, tear, tear emojis. And, you know, I'm sorry. And he just puts his phone in his locker, gets on his gym clothes, goes in, takes his 250-pound weight off the bench press. What happens? <laughs> Breaks his ribs. And he can't even get it off. He's waiting for the gym guys. It's the heaviest thing he ever lifted. Because he lost the wine. How many of us have felt that kind of weight in Judaism? How many of us have felt the, that all we got left is what without the why? And we feel like our ribs are breaking. And what happens when 250 pounds breaks through the ribs? What's, what part is it compressing on? The lungs, the air, oxygen. We feel like Judaism suffocating us instead of giving us life. And the reason is, is not because anyone wanted to take away the whys. The opposite, the whys are very important. It's just that when you're going through a lot, whys are going to be the first to go. When you're trying to survive, it's about what? You know, if you're just trying to get a slice of bread, you're not looking for cream cheese. When you got yourself a piece of meat, you're not looking for the gravy. You just want to chew on that meat as long as you can. And so our people has been through living hell over the last 200 years, 240 years, 220 years. Now, Things weren't pretty before that either. We'd been getting exiled and exiled and exiled and exiled. You knew growing up in your home, you'd be not living in that home or that city or that country by the time you'd be an elderly person. Nothing you built was permanent because you'd be exiled by the time you were an elderly person. So you'd be born in one town. You'd call that home. You'd know you're being hosted because your grandparents weren't born there. Grandparents were born two countries over before they were exiled and had everything ripped out from under them. That went on for about... 1700 years and then came the industrial revolution and then came the enlightenment and Judaism gets this massive massive slam from what was called the enlightenment movement the enlightenment movement was the first opportunity it's called in Hebrew the Haskalah 
The Haskalah was the first opportunity for a Jew to jump ship. See, Jews, what was the, if you were a European Jew, you're either Jewish or you're Christian. Christians had blood all over their hands. Christians were the most murderous people that the earth probably ever knew. And Muslims have done nothing compared to the Christians. Muslims are peaceful compared to Christians. Christians have way more blood on their hands than any Muslims. And if you add all the, you know, Westerners in general, who are really, they're called Christian countries, then forget about it. I mean, they have like ten times the blood on their hands than, than Muslims. I mean, you know that there were towns of, along the, just for an example, you guys heard the term Black Sabbath before? Black Sabbath is a Jewish name. It's not, I know it's the name of a heavy metal band, but it's very distasteful that they named their, their band that. It's a cool name, and I, knew, I grew up also playing Black Sabbath songs in my band and stuff. I didn't realize what it meant. What's up, bro? There's, there's a spot up here on the floor if you want, but can you bring some water with you? Why you come? Thank you. I see you're into water and sports and stuff. You should marry a girl that loves a guy in shape. <laughs> oh yeah, great. The Jerusalem Marathon? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I saw the finish lines all set up on Vinsala on uh Ben Sweden. Friday. Marathon's Friday. Yeah. Watch out, traffic's gonna be a little interesting on Friday because a lot of the streets will be being run on by marathon runners. Black Sabbath was one Shabbos in Jewish history along the Rhine River in Germany, where the three greatest towns of Jewish scholarship, piety, saintliness existed. It was probably one of the highest points of our scholarship in all of European history, where the holiest people who lived on the earth of Jews lived in these towns. There were the towns of Worms, the towns of, of Mainz, and the town of Spire. Like, for example, anyone you meet named Spiro, Shapiro, Ken Spiro, um, any names like that, Spiro, they're all from there. They're all from the town of Spire. And in one day, the Christians came through there and killed every man, woman, and child on Shabbos. Meaning, they all took in Shabbos, and there was not a living man, woman, or child, elderly person, or anything in these big towns that were the 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 pinnacle of, of Jewish scholarship, leadership, piety, sanctity. There, there was not a personal eye. So tell me, what do you think the conversion rate to Christianity was amongst Jews for those couple thousand years there? What do you, meaning for the 1,700 years. And what do you think the conversion rate percentage was, high or low? Zero. Nobody converted to Christianity. Nobody. I mean, there were people who were forced, you know, and they had to go underground. They're called Muranos. No one took it on. Even the Muranos, they were not Christians. They, they went underground with their Judaism. That's why you see today, you'll go to, our, to uh, Judaica shops, and they have these amazing things where it looks like a choo-choo train or something like that. But if you look at the choo-choo train, if you open it up, there's two candle holders underneath the engine, and then you go back and you realize the next train is a spice box, and the next train is, it's, it's underground Judaism. Inside, those, these are some of the best Judaica finds, is getting these. I mean, it's hard to get classics. Those are worth you know millions probably today, but 
but silversmiths don't still make the Murano um, Judaica that's hidden inside the, the uh, hidden inside the ark. No one joined Christianity. It was not one of the options. You, you just spent your whole life just praying to stay out of the clutches of the, of the, the, the incredible death trap that, that it was for the Jews. And, I mean, we were Christ killers. We were, their entire belief system, their entire, your, your existence, even if you knew, you didn't know your first thing about Judaism, the fact that you existed proves that what they were believing in wasn't real. Why? Because their whole belief was they're the, that, that they're the new chosen people. But if they're the new chosen people, what's this lady doing growing up in England in year 2018? Jewish lady. Where'd she come from? So it doesn't matter how much Judaism you know, the fact that a Jew exists shows that the eternal people, are that the, when God says you'll be an eternal nation, he means it. And that he's not passing the baton to any other nation. He will never trade us for another nation. Now, obviously, here in, at this end of history, we know this, but um, because we have uh, some really amazing facts that are, have only been discovered in this century about about our people, that uh, shows that we're eternal, that proves we're eternal. Uh, besides our very existence, which shows it as well. Now, what happened was after the Industrial Revolution, I guess there was something about the mechanization of Europe that people started getting this kind of arrogance, like, hey, we can take care of ourselves now. We got mechanization, we got industriousness. We will, we will, we're gonna make this happen. We don't need to, we don't need God. And they got out from the thumb of God and they created what was called the Enlightenment Movement, Haskalah, which means that for the first time in Jewish history, there was a secular option. A secular option. You wanna know something amazing? That even though 200 years ago, 220 years ago when this had started, even though at that point 98% of Jews were fully observant, not necessarily scholars, but they kept Shabbat, they kept kosher, they, you know, they learned the basics, they were certainly literate. Today, in 2018, 220 years later, 85% of Jews today are secular. So when I say we've been through hell, the hell we went through before was our body's hell. The last 200 years has been our soul's hell. Meaning our bodies were put through hell. The last 200 years, our souls were put through hell. Not to mention our bodies, because as you all know, World War One was crazy. There were pogroms that were insane, and then, of course, the Holocaust. We lose a third of our people to the Nazi death machine. Like we've been through hell, and you know what got eaten in all the process? What got sacrificed? Why? Now it was probably your parents or grandparents' generation that were raised with only what? We're just going to survive with what? No gravy on the meat. No cream cheese on the bread. You're just going to take what you got and survive. But as we all know, if Judaism is only the body, only the ritual without the spirit, so then it's dead. A mitzvah that is, or a Judaism that is dead, that doesn't have spirit, doesn't have wine behind it, 
It's dead. And that's why the majority of you raised your hand for why. When I said, what do you prefer, what or why, I kind of trapped you. Because most of the people raise their hand for why. Because you know what? We got enough what's going on. Um, I'll admit it, I, I had a dead mitzvah. And I'm embarrassed to say which mitzvah was dead for me because it's kind of a big one. <laughs> Not the mitzvah you want dead, I'll tell you that much. You ready for what mitzvah was dead for me? My dead mitzvah was tefillin. Which is like the wrong mitzvah to be dead because us men, like putting on tefillin is kind of like... I mean, you, you didn't start your day if you didn't put on tefillin. Like, it's like, it's like it would be like forgetting to put your pants on in the morning is not putting on your tefillin. And here my mitzvah was dead. The reason it died was because when I came to Jerusalem, you know, however many years ago, almost three decades ago, I was taking on command, I was taking stuff on, quick. But only when I un really understood why. When I really understood why, I went straight to the what. Why, what, why, what. Nishma, naseh, nishma, naseh. Find out why, and then I do what? Everything was totally organic. I was so into it, and I still am. Like, there's nothing. Like, my sitsis are the most precious thing in the world to me. And I'm missing my ones with the blue thread on my tallest girl. I just forgot them last Shabbos, and I'm desperate to get them back. A guy found them and subsequently lost them. So please, God, they're going to come back. I never lose anything, by the way, so you can ask me next week if they came back. Now, the... Uh, that's the whys and the whats. Sorry, what am I talking about? Oh, my dead mitzvah. So what happened is all my roommates, here in Asia Torah, all my roommates, it was the big day to start putting on tefillin. And they're like, we're all going down the kotel, and we're starting tefillin. You want to come? And I said, I, yeah. Except, did I learn the whys of tefillin yet? I didn't learn the whys of tefillin. I was holding off on tefillin for a while because there's a lot to learn. And I hadn't even started. I hadn't opened the first page on tefillin. I didn't know what it was. I just know it's these black boxes. I knew they were like these really <coughs> fuzzy-looking Chabadniks who used to chase me around in L.A. to get me to put it on, which really, in California, that ain't cool. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, you don't put your trip on nobody in California. You know, like, what does this dude want me in his black boxes for? And ain't he ever seen a razor? So... The, uh, anyway, but that, that like freaked me out, the Chabadniks with their tefillin. <laughs> so the only experience I had had was a negative one. And now if I'm going to start putting them on, I better learn a lot about it. But I wasn't, I wasn't ready. But guess what? I went down to the hotel and I put on those tefillin with these guys. And I remember the rabbi saying, now that you're putting these on, you make sure you never miss a day for the rest of your life. And I was just like gold <laughs> and I wore them for many years got married raised kids and had my tefillin and just the mitzvah was DOA dead on arrival all those years and finally I decided to resuscitate the commandment of tefillin and what I did was I went to the top sofa the top scribe in Jerusalem and I ordered him I, I ordered parshas I I um, commissioned him to write me personal scrolls for my tefillin. I sat next to him while he wrote them. He explained everything about them. I went to several great rabbis to explain it. About, explain it. I, went, I poured through books. 
by the time I was done buying the tefillin, it was $1,900 for my tefillin. And I just invested and invested and invested and invested just to get those Ys built up. And then I finally got my tefillin. I didn't even let the scribe send them to the checker because you, you can't check your own writing. You have to send it to a, someone who's got fresh eyes whose job is checking. I dro- I, I'm driving them. And I drove them to the checker. Like, I'm part of every part of this. Like, I want to be there. And I put on those tefillin, and thank God, <laughs> my tefillin is alive. Like, now my tefillin's alive. But that was after 13 years of having a dead mitzvah in my life. And this is the importance of Torah study. Torah study is not just the what's, but it's the why's. It's making sure that you got your what's and your why's totally hooked up. Now, I just want to mention other cultures. I want to mention Western culture. They're kind of ritualistic people. And then you got Eastern cultures who are kind of more spirit-oriented. Meaning, if you went, and I don't bless you to do this, but if you went to meditate in India for several years, and you got to the point where you could meditate all day, that would be considered you made. But would we call him, what's your name? Andrew. Would we call Andrew spiritual or spirit? If he's meditating all day. He breaks only to eat a little porridge and, you know, taking care of his physical needs. Spirit or spiritual? He's spirit. And Westerners, as you know, are so into their daily ritual and their cappuccino and their, you know, and their whatever they do in their rituals. But they're so ritualistic including Western religion, which is hardly Judaism. They're very into the ritual aspect. Very into rituals. Would you call someone very into rituals who, you know, there's no real spirit, or even if there is, they don't know what it is. Would you call that person spiritual or ritual? It's a ritual person. But I'm going to ask you, what is directly between Kathmandu and Rome? What's geographically between Kathmandu and Rome? Jerusalem, yeah. Jerusalem, if I forget you. Yeah, Jerusalem's right in the middle. And that's where the spirit and the ritual are infused. In the actual ritual of things, there are 613 hyperlinks for what we do. 613 hyperlinks. Here we have the Kabbalah. This is going to be the, the Kabbalah of why we do everything. This is the 613. Now, why am I calling it the 613 hyperlinks? Access points to spirituality. No. There are access points. There are access points to God's will. Just to His will. He wills you to do this. He wills you not to do that. Now, how many laws are there? How many laws are there? No, 613, that's the hyperlinks. Meaning, this sitsis is one of the commandments, but nowhere in the Torah is it going to tell you how to make this. There's a lot of laws involved in this. So one commandment could have, uh, really could have thousands of laws. Like, for example, if you click on the hyperlink called Malacha on Shabbat, you know the word Malacha? Don't do any malacha. So if you click on that word, how many laws do you think come off of there? Not <laughs> The whole 613 boils down to 
The whole 613 boils down to 55,000 laws. 55,000 laws. Would you guys say we're pretty heavy on the what? We heavy on the what? Now, you ready for this? Here we go. If each one of those laws has a Y to it, if each one of those laws has a Y to it, and you ready for this? For every Y, for every law, even the most minute little law, if I were to tell you the Y, I would assume that for every what I could tell you in the laws of the 55,000, I could probably give you an hour class on the Y. Meaning, for example, if we were to look into one of the laws of tefillin, which is some arbitrary, like, it's got to be above the hairline. Sounds kind of arbitrary, right? I think to explain why it's got to be above the hairline would take me three hours. Which would go into mindfulness and third eye, and you'd have to understand a lot of things in the Kabbalah to understand why it has to be up there. Because really, it's got to be right up there. And you should know, by the way, that that's the soft spot on the baby's head where the tefillin goes. That's the aperture. That is the, the wormhole straight to the center of the brain, which is where there's a gland called the pineal glandus, which is, means the face of God. When Jacob wrestled with the angel of Asaph, and he said, I saw the face of God, pineal, the face of God. So you have a gland there called the face of God. And you have to put your tefillin right there. That. I, I could go on and on. I'm not going on and on, but it would take three hours. So, ready for this? If the what's are 55,000 points, and for every what, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff to learn about in the why's. Can you imagine how much is going on here in the what's and the why's? Amazing stuff. We've got, we got a fabulous job ahead of us to study and study our whole lives. It will never get there. But everything we learn is going to inspire us because vacation won't inspire you. <laughs> Committing fully into something and just becoming someone who grows as a Jew, just grows as a Jew. I'm not talking about taking on anything quickly or anything like that. I, all I'm saying is when something's true to you, you, you just integrate it which is called integrity. Meaning if something's true to you, something's real to you, and you integrate it, that means you're someone with integrity. So let's just say you live with Judaism integrably, like you totally integrate what you learn. You realize what an amazing life you're going to have? You realize how awesome a life you're going to have? An amazing life you have. If you live your life with full integrity, what's integrity? Integration. If it's true, it's you. If you live your life with full integrity, you know what that means? You know who you're going to marry? You know who your husband's going to be? Your husband's going to be someone who would only marry someone with high levels of integrity, meaning she integrates stuff. She doesn't like hear something and then do something else. She hears something and says, wow, that's like, that really resonates with me. And then she takes it on. So, so a person who lives that way gets to marry someone very special who lives that way as well. And guess what? They're never bored because they have Torah. Like my wife and I, have, we have, we're married 23 years now. We spend a lot of time together. We're never bored. Ever bored. And we do all-nighters. My wife and I, for 23 years, probably still do at least... And we used to do a lot of all-nighters. I'd say we do at least 
two to three all-nighters once a month. All-nighters. I mean, we see the sunrise. Just talking to her together. Yes. I mean, what, what better thing in the world could you have than be married to a companion who lives... And all it takes is one attribute. One attribute. Integrity. That you integrate what you know with who you are. That's it. Shalom, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.